Hi there, welcome to the Throw Room Podcast. My name is Taylor, I'm your host, and we are a podcast here simply for developing a deeper connection with God. Please stay tuned for episodes where we do interviews, where we do a devotion, where we may do a study, whatever it may be. So sit back, relax, enjoy today's episode, leave us a like and a follow on Instagram, and share us with your friends. Now to begin. Hi guys, welcome back to the Throne Room Podcast. And today we are leaving off right where we left off in the last episode, but now we're in chapter 2. We left off last episode with Isaiah when he saw the Lord and he immediately responds with, Woe is me. Because when one is in the presence of the Holy God, it reveals to us how much we are lacking and how unholy we are. This man Isaiah was a prophet, one who worked in the service of the Lord, and even he still felt unclean in the sight, in the presence of God. And chapter 2 picks up pretty much right there. Um, Yet this time it's not a vision of the Lord, but it's the Lord in the flesh, Jesus, standing on the shore teaching. And then he turns and looks to Peter and is like, yo bro, can I borrow your boat? Peter was tired for the night of attempting to fish to no avail. Um, More than likely was reluctant, honestly, at first I would be, um, but did so anyway. And after Jesus teaches the crowd and the multitude, he turns from them to the tired and worn out Peter and tells him, Hey, cast your nets again. Go out and do it again. And Peter more than likely looked at this man and called Jesus a psycho. I would have, but he even said something, he probably did say something like, dude, you're crazy. But he still does... And then suddenly, he still does it. He still goes out and he casts his nets. And and then suddenly, his nets are filled supernaturally. His nets begin to fill to a point that his nets were about to break. And maybe even his boat tip over because of all the weight of the fish. All his life, Peter has been a fisherman and knew this like probably inside and out. Who is to say where they were wasn't known as a dead part of the lake. Maybe it was a part of the lake that was known for producing little to no to no catch and then this miraculous unnatural occurrence happens and awakens this notion inside of peter that the man that was on his boat wasn't just some teacher or some man but was god himself in the flesh and peter response to him echoes that of isaiah peter in the presence of god turns to jesus and says depart leave me for i am a sinful man lord notice how peter and isaiah aren't brought to praise but confession Jackie, in chapter 2, states this. Both men understood themselves differently at the sight of God, as if by proximity, their hearts and their nature were laid bare and exposed to the light. His very being stood in moral contrast to theirs, and to the point that they had no inward justification to quench the truth about themselves. Being near the one who is light and who has no darkness within himself illuminated their consciousness to understand something very simple, that God was holy and they were not. Holiness makes honesty an obligation. Whether we see ourselves as a communicator of God's truth like Isaiah or a person with a collar colored blue, our titles tell, tell what our titles tell is little about who we really are. Whatever we do and however we identify, when near God, we will see the truth and nothing but it, and that what, and that's what God is, and we are not, and that He is holy. 
She continues in subsequent paragraphs to discuss how God's holiness makes him sinless, and to say he is sinless is to pretty much be unable to blame God for anything or lay charge to God or see God with fault. And when God is faultless, meaning no, nothing can be found in him, God is morally pure. And to imagine anything different would be to imagine something or someone other than God. Duh. If if you take, like we said in the last ch chapter, she says, you know, if you take all of God's nature and treat it like a pie and split it apart, you can't really do that because all of it is essence God. This calls back to what I said last episode. Oh, wow. What did I, what did I just do? <laughs> anyway, sorry, I got lost in my own notes. Uh, so this calls back to what I said last episode, that even if you are in ministry or called to ministry, or maybe you just help, help out here and there within the church, you may not preach or teach, but you just do the little things to help in a big way, or maybe you're just, as my pastor calls them, smos, Sunday morning onlys. When you get into the presence of God, you cannot and will not be able to stand there puffed up, proud in any way. No matter what the position or calling we are, we are all unworthy of it and unclean. Yet thanks be to God and the sacrifice on Calvary, we get the chance to commune and rejoin our creator in how it was supposed to be. Where we can hear his voice walking with us in the cool of day. In the next section, Jackie begins to discuss God's moral purity in relation to his holiness as well as the law. She goes on to say, We lust after ultimate authority, planting our flags in shallow soil and claiming ourselves and others as our property. It's not until the law is put before us that in its mirror we see that we haven't become like God at all, but we image or look like Satan. Ooh, think about it! Uh, so... You know, sin has always been, you know, you can do this. You know, he, God's not really honest. Um, you can be like God and eat the fruit. You can be like God. But honestly, when we put ourselves in front of the law, we aren't like God at all, but we're like Satan. She, she then goes on to state that the law is holy because the one who gave it, God, is holy. And that if we are to respond to it like it was originally intended with complete obedience, we would have been all reckoned good. But the problem is no one is good but God. Looking at the law reveals God's nature and his eloquence. What he commands in his law is what he is himself. Love is not God, but God is love. And so being he is active in how he gives it away. Murder, theft, adultery, dishonesty, and covetousness are a set of behaviors and heart postures that don't and cannot exist in God. Not because he is love, but because he is holy. Catch that again. We're talking about the commandments and the law and everything here. If we were to, if God was murderous, any of that, he wouldn't be God. And so when we see that God's asking this of us, it's because he's holy, you know, anyway, trying to expound on it, but I really feel like you're getting it anyway. The holiness of God is what makes real love possible. Without it, love is purely sentimental, easily misplaced, and unconditional, unconditionally unconditional. Being morally perfect positions God's love as a living thing that won't and literally can't dishonor creation. If God were to command something different, even opposite, would reveal him as a terror or a dictator. That sounds like Satan more than God. And if God had done so, it would have made him an instigator of hatred. And if we would have followed that line of thinking, we would be animalistic and self-centered even more so than we are now. 
Thankfully, this is not how the law is, and not where it came from. The law was given by a holy and righteous God who calls us to go higher and live bigger. The law magnifies our darkness because its giver is light. It reveals our impurities because he is pure. Now we're getting to, to some good stuff. Law may, The law may have revealed God's nature, but there came a day when God robed himself in flesh and walked amongst man as Jesus. Jesus is... The image of the invisible God. Everything he did was holy, righteous, and just. While on earth no sin was found in him, nor did he commit any sins, making him, as we know the, as we know it, the spotless Lamb of God. Which is why when he stepped onto the boat that day with Peter, Peter had to respond the way he did. When he steps on the shores of Gerasene, which I probably mispronounced that, the demoniac with legion came running to the feet of Jesus and saying, you know, don't hurt me. But he was so, there was something that as soon as he stepped foot on that land, something changed. When Jesus was touched by the woman ridden with the blood or with issues of blood, she was healed. The man Christ Jesus was the expression of God with us on earth and the magnetic pull, the purity and power of God. Could you imagine your senses had been, just imagine if you will, your senses. You have been dulled by the sin of the world around you. And then suddenly in a moment, something was different. The air felt different. Everything seemed to be shrouded in a light, unlike before, because the Holy One just walked onto the scene. Think about it. When Jesus stepped into a situation in scripture, something changed. Something happened. Because it had to have. Because sin and wickedness has no place in the presence of God. Has no place. So when he steps onto the scene, things change immediately. The world changes based on the nature of God. When it's when he steps in. This is another reason why the Pharisees hated him. The light he brought convicted them of their sins. But instead of giving into those convictions, they turned their eyes and ears and began to project their own sins onto Jesus to resist the truth he spoke, evading accountability through accusations that they threw at him. And those accusations built and built and they got other people to accuse them. And none of them knew who they were talking about. If they understood that they were talking about God, they would have, you know, anyway, if they had just understood what was going on, but they didn't, they didn't. And so through the law, we see the nature of God revealed through Jesus. We see the nature of God expressed and, and we're coming to my favorite part in the whole chapter and because, and it just, every time I, I ball and hopefully I don't do it today, but I'm going to read it straight from the book. Okay. I'm going to read it. This is coming straight from the book. And this is my favorite part. And, and you have to listen. And if I stutter, if I'm going to cry, you're just going to have to forgive me. And before she's talking about, you know, sinful world and how it affects us, how we, how we see through the world through these broken lenses. And she goes, some of us, and here's where I'm going to pick up. Some of us still grieve the memory. Nope. Skip down. Lies. I lied to you. Among us are those who have been on the other end of trauma so ungodly, the body forgot the pain to protect itself from the shock of remembering. I can't imagine how many hands we'd need to number the times we've been lied to, talked about, objectified, ignored, abandoned, rejected, and abused. If you think about it, some of the sins we own are those we acquired as a way to cope. 
withholding love because it's been taken advantage of. Easily given to rage or irritation because in us is a hurt we're too afraid to name. This world was never been as safe as this world has never been as safe as heaven. So for protection we exist in guarding ourselves from the trauma of it. And I wonder if underneath our doubt Way at the bottom of it is a suspicion that God isn't safe either, that he is just like the father that left us, the mother that forgot to nurture us, the friend that didn't listen to us, and the folks in position of power that abused us. So when God reveals himself as our heavenly parent, a faithful friend, and our Lord, we don't relinquish control, surrendering our wills because we've mistakenly project unto God the nature of those who have sinned against us. Seeing heaven through the lens of earth, I am God through the lens of fear. Hear this. God's words and works can be trusted because it is impossible for God to sin against you. If he could, he wouldn't be God. There is an unattained goodness in Jesus, the spotless Savior, the unblemished Lamb. To believe otherwise is to imagine an entirely different being. He can no more act contrary to the goodness in any of his actions that he can un-God himself. Since he has got a holy one at that, in all of his dealings with us, he is always good. Always, as in at all times, consistently, perpetually, night and day. The Rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Deuteronomy 32 and 4. Consider the law again and how it reveals God's nature. What God has commanded, he himself embodies. God honors. God is life-giving. God is a covenant keeper. God takes what he is and gives it away. God tells the truth. God is content, never needy for anything, only jealous for our own, for our whole heart to have and to hold. God's perfection is, in fact, what we want most in our neighbors. We desire a measure of integrity and neighborly love that we've sometimes seen in the holiness, holiest of saints. But behold the Holy One. In His perfection, all He will ever be is good to us, good for us. Even when suffering breaks in, tempting us to curse God and die, remember that God in whom your suffering was given an allowance. Of Him it is said, though He caused grief, He will have compassion according to the abundance of His steadfast love. Lamentations 3 and 32. Even when it hurts, it's not as though God has somehow changed, becoming cruel or inflicting pain without purpose. It's not as if when everything collapses in on itself, God will leave you to pick up the pieces. As the holy God, he is present in our pain with the steady promise of redeeming it for our good. And he knows that... And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8 and 28. His transcendence makes his makes this promise possible if he was derivative of this world every uneasy circumstance would come without a leash independent of it god is sovereign over all of it now this wouldn't be anything to lift a praise for if the sovereign one was void of compassion of love of native holiness what would it do for us to know he has power but not the impulse to use it for good but our god is no politician having authority without righteousness upon leaving heaven he took part in all kinds of suffering that we may never fully grasp the final blow was felt when the father poured out the cup of wrath on himself for our sake this is to say that jesus is neither ignorant of suffering nor powerless because of it because he knows it well well enough to offer empathy, yes, but also victorious enough to give us hope, as First Peter 5, 10, and 11 would put it. 
And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to him. Be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. When there is a storm, believe God. When there is stillness, believe God. He is too holy to deceive, too holy to lead you anywhere but to truth. When God tells you to cast your cares on him because he cares for you, he is not lying. 1 Peter 5 and 7. There was no deceit found in his mouth then. Search for it now and you will only find light. He can be trusted with our cares because a holy God cannot be an apathetic God. How can I say it? Look let us look to Jesus another time again on the boat. When the waters threatened to swallow their boat whole, the disciples questioned their compassion of their sleeping Savior by saying, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? It's comical how unbelief works, how it made them think Jesus was unconcerned about their lives when he came to earth to save it in the first place. Just like them, we are in water-torn boats. On land, we are strangers bleeding on the roadside. Our only hope is for someone gentle and lowly to calm the storm and heal our wounds and carry our yoke. See the cross and believe the Lord upon it. He is greater than the great Samaritan. He cares to the point of death. So take him at his word, giving him your burdens, trading it for his peace. When God tells you that your life will be lost if, if and when you try to save it, but losing it for his sake is where you will find it, believe him. Christ will not allow you to find life any other way because there is no other way devils will tell you that it's possible to live without god but reality is as christ told us is that there is no life outside of him after the crowd left him to find life where there was none jesus asked the disciples if they wanted to leave too peter said lord to whom shall we go you have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the holy one of god John 6, 68 and 69. Peter figured out that the Holy One can't lie to them, that his words are true and should be believed. That's where God is. is. Life is too. When God says that if you ask, it will be given to you, that if you seek and you will find, believe him. The act of asking feels trivial at the point that you believe in God who will not answer when asked. As if he sees the knocking and ignores the person lifting the hand. God is not like us in this way, seeing the needs of others and scrolling to the next post, declining the call, denying relief. God is not an idol, a being that can't speak when spoken to, hear when prayed to, act when asked. On Mount Carmel, the difference between God and the idols came down to the manifestation of the one being lifeless and therefore unable to answer prayers. To Baal, they said, oh, Baal, answer us. The result... But there was no voice, and no one answered. The Holy God has life in himself, forever aware of what we need before we even ask. You hear because he can. You speak because he always has. Your image in, is his, remember? The ability to communicate began with your being made by and for him. Remove the lie from your mind that God does not listen or speak or act when asked. He is alive at all times, answering every prayer. Sometimes a yes, other times a no. Many times away, and all three are answers. All three are governed by transcendent wisdom for our good and always. And what else should we expect from the Holy One? That the Holy God who is good at all times, and all the time the Holy God is good. This God is worthy to be believed. And that's the glory of it all. That because of this holiness, 
that God has. He cannot. God is, God is not a man that he should lie. There's no sin found in him, nor will we be able to find sin done by him. And because of that, God cannot do anything contrary to his nature to you and can and will must be trusted. But many times we let the things that have happened to us color how we view God. The hurts, the abuse, the pain, even maybe something we've done to somebody else. We think if we we have that ability, then God can do it. But that's not that's not the case. God's love is above it all, and He will not only. Oh, Jesus. God is so good to us. God loves us so much that He robed Himself in flesh and went to Calvary for us. Not for us to just turn around and turn a blind eye and call him a liar. The nature revealed in the law, the lovingness of God. Today, when you're driving or when you're at work or when you go to church or in your own prayer time, take the time to think. On the love of God and the nature of God and how it's been revealed to you. Because God is not that person who's hurt you or abused you. He can't be. There's no way God can be that way. Though this world would love to try to convince you that God is ignorant of our problems and pains. The fact of the matter is he was the one most acquainted with grief above all. He came to this earth, walked amongst us, lost friends, lost family members because of the things he had to state. And to see his own people turn against him and then die. Just think on these things. Hopefully... We can pick up where we left off with chapter three next time. But yes, just today, just think. Just take a chance and and just talk to Jesus. Just talk to Jesus. Mm-hmm.